We're starting off the show taking a look to what daycare might look like in the fall. As we know, a lot of daycares saw their numbers plummet as people started working from home. In some cases, people lost their employment when the pandemic hit. It's expected that will change come fall. But one daycare operator in Port Moody is suggesting there could be a lot of issues when we take a look at the red tape and some of the obstacles when it comes to getting employees to work at daycares. Danita Sepp joins me now, the owner of Block 8 Academy in Port Moody. Thank you so much for being with us with us. Oh, no problem. Thank you. What has it been like then being a daycare operator throughout the pandemic? Oh, wow. (laughs) It's been quite a ride, I have to say. Like, daycare has always been volatile and there's always been changes. Um, Like, a couple years ago, we had to open a facility in two years because of the Supreme Court uh, ruling kicking one of the local daycares out of uh, the, the elementary school here. So that we thought was an extreme thing. And then when COVID hit, it was uh, a completely new world Uh, from plummeting. um, We went from being full with basically 70 kids to being down to three to five kids. Uh, All of a sudden, our administration, everything was in administration. We had three times the administration that we'd ever had before. And then we'd have up to 10 kids for a while, then down to three. Then So it was... Um, completely different sterilization and revamping the way we did everything. So what are you thinking now then, or what are you hearing as far as as people are potentially heading back to the office or will need more daycare in the coming months? What are you hearing from people? Well, it's been an interesting time, actually. We We were bracing for people to come back or hoping they'd come back. And so they started trickling back, but... A lot of the kids just didn't materialize. I think that a lot of parents got used to, especially the grade three to five, um, they got them being around home, having some more screen time during COVID. And so then the thought of paying $500 a month for a daycare when they could just have them sit on a few more hours a day of screens, um, they decided that they wouldn't come back. A lot of the, those kids have not come back to the before and after school care. Now they're, they're trickling back. Um, and there's still some kids who have opted for like homeschooling or distributed learning. So I guess the question is, and then with the younger kids, there's still delayed start dates. So parents are working flexibly. The kids aren't coming back to daycare as fast. But then at some point are they going to start coming back quickly and are the daycares going to have to respond? We, during COVID, we closed one of our facilities because we simply didn't have uh, the enrollment. We were down, even after the children came back, we were down around 50%. So we closed one facility. We sublet that out to a daycare for younger kids and now they are having problems. It's a wonderful daycare in Port Moody and they're having problems filling up just because the parents keep on delaying their start dates. And they are like, oh, I'd like to start in September. Well, now maybe October. And so they're struggling. And then if they end up closing up as well because the kids haven't come back yet, then what's going to happen? Because with the facilities are closing, then what happens if suddenly the kids come back? Right. And is it, does it work? I, I'm, I don't know if daycares are different from facility to facility, but is it kind of the idea of people, parents that had spots in daycares that started working for home, from home or for whatever reason didn't need the spots? Are they able to hang on to them? So if they do decide, say, September or October or when they want to come back, that spot is saved for them? 
Um, well, they don't really need them saved right now because we're empty. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, no, we don't save them, but the, there's no kids attending. Like the, the one daycare up on the hill there that we sublet, they have lots of spots. And, um, you know, we our before and after school care is just getting fuller now, but we've still got spots as well. So there's not the concept of saving it, but when they come back, it's going to be who comes back first. Right. And I, I know there was a an article in the local paper and you talked about the fact that there's a lot of red tape when it comes to daycares that have closed or are opening back up and inviting people back. What is the red tape that you see as being an issue or a problem as daycares do will inevitably start getting busier? Right. Um, well, I think because daycare has always been volatile, especially in our community, most of the operators, like we have around a thousand, just over a thousand daycare spaces in Port Moody. And of those, 86% are operated by private, small private operators. That's women, immigrants. They're people who have been able to react very quickly to changes in daycare, like starting up one in two weeks and going through the entire licensing process, basically working through the night, getting leasing space. And um, so 13% are larger operators that they have shareholders or have spaces across the country. So we, it's 100% are privately operated in Port Moody. A lot of the funding um, is going towards nonprofit and public spaces. Those spaces move a lot more slowly in the things that they have to do. And also in the case of Port Moody, they have to be getting, if, if all the funding goes for new spaces goes to that type of operator, you're bringing in new operators to uh, to Port Moody when there are none. There are no nonprofit. There are no public operators. So all of the women and immigrants who have traditionally made their um, their careers and it made big sacrifices to make careers in daycare, they aren't being covered by a lot of the funding. So um, that's one of the things. Now, most of them do not have business degrees. It's possible to wrap yourself in a nonprofit and then apply for those funding, a lot of those uh, daycare creation spots. But so many of the women and, and new immigrants would not have the business knowledge to to do that. So they're left um, being left out of a lot of the funding. And I understand, too, you've talked as well about there's the wages that are boosted if you've got your early childhood education certificate, but it doesn't apply if you've got other types of education. Right. And that's, um, I think that a large part from what I've seen before and after school care is being left out of um, the funding. They seem to be focusing on younger kids a lot. And so for before and after school care, we have, there's a huge um, uh, body, a resource of retired teachers who would love to take a couple, do three hours a day of providing after school care. And they've got training that's specific to that age group, but the wage enhancements only uh, are targeted towards people with the one-year ECE degree. So we've got um, teachers who are being paid, retired teachers, and uh, well, they're not retired teachers, they're now working, and also teachers that have taken their Bachelor of Education degree and decided that they want to, for whatever reason, do something more flexibly. They're getting paid less with their four-year degree than the people with the nine-month to one-year ECE degree. So if you're trying to uh, attract quality staff, 
what about the teachers? What about somebody with a bachelor of education? Should they not be covered by the $4 wage enhancement the same way that the staff that have their one-year uh, ECE? Yeah, it seems like it for sure. Uh, what would you like to see happen then as we head into the fall? And again, daycares will likely see the return of more children. What do you think needs to be done to try and make that a smooth transition? It's, um, I would like them to look at uh, putting more staff on the criminal record checks, actually, because one of the things right now, we can't get new staff because we are backlogged sometimes six weeks with a criminal record check. If you have staff that all of a sudden gets sick, has to isolate, and you can't get more staff on. Um, so I would like more staff uh, covering those criminal record checks. I'd like to be, them to evaluate giving the $4 wage enhancement to people with a Bachelor of Education and other jobs that are actually more specific to school-age children. And I'd like to them to remember that the, the small operators are um, really have been the backbone of daycare uh, in the province. And can, I, I don't understand the bias against them in so many of the new programs. Uh, so I guess that would be it. <laughs> All right. Well, it's a lot, I think, that parents are thinking about and certainly people working in daycare are hoping that it will get sorted out as well. Danita, thank you so much for your time and for talking to us about this today. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Have a good day. Well, during the French language debate last night, there was talk about the various promises when it comes to gun laws in this country and what might happen under various forms of government. Aaron O'Toole being accused of contradicting his own party's platform. Take a listen to what all three leaders said today. This was in their news conferences today when asked about what was said and what their policy is when it comes to banning what some would say are guns that shouldn't be part of Canada. Our goal is to keep people safe, and that means to remove those sorts of weapons from Canada entirely, which includes a buyback program so that they're not in, uh, in our country anymore. The Liberals and the Conservatives aren't clear on this. They haven't been clear, and uh, our position is very clear. We've got to do whatever it takes to make sure we keep people safe, and there are certain weapons that, that, that should not be in circulation in Canada. As I've said, we will maintain the ban on assault weapons, and we will make sure that we work with police, and we work to make sure that there's a transparent process to keep people safe, and to make sure that we tackle rising gun violence, particularly through organized crime and, and gangs. We need to stop the smuggling and have a process to do that. He says very clearly, on page 90 of his platform that he will reverse the May 2020 order in council by this government, the one that bans military-style assault weapons in this country. All right, that was Jugmeet Singh, followed by Aaron O'Toole, followed by Justin Trudeau. Let's bring on Rod Giltaka. He is the CEO and Executive Director at the Canadian Coalition for Firearm Rights. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. What's your response when you hear just even those short clips from those three leaders? I think it's just great. So what's happened is, interestingly, the Liberals' word games that they've been playing with Canadians from the beginning of this assault weapons thing are now getting thrown 
right back at them. And it's about time. And I can unpack this if you give me just a little bit of latitude. Mm-hmm. Please do. Okay. All right. So assault weapons were banned 44 years ago in 1977. Fully automatic machine guns. They were banned. And they've been banned ever since. The liberals in May 2020 banned civilian firearms. These are firearms that the RCMP have determined are safe for use for sporting and hunting purposes. And Canadians have owned those guns for over half a century. They started, the Liberals started out calling those assault weapons. They got taken to task because they aren't. And then they started calling them assault-style weapons, which, is, of course, is absurd because it's like saying you have a, you have a, a race, racing-style car. It doesn't mean it's a race car. So, but when they switched, but if you notice, as the election got closer, when they knew they were going to call, they started calling them assault weapons again for the election. And that's to scare people. Now, unfortunately, O'Toole knows something about firearms. He served in the military. And he has provided Trudeau an opportunity to explain to Canadians what kind of guns were actually banned in May 2020. So good on Aaron for drawing Trudeau out on this. And you can see how, how he's got them running around, uh, you know, trying to, trying to make the O'Toole the bad guy when they've been the ones playing the word games. Do you think, though, and obviously you know what the Firearms Act has in it, you know what the rules are, but for the average Canadian, you're right, they're going to hear a term like assault weapon or assault style weapon and think, yeah, for sure, why do we have those on our streets? Right. So assault weapons typically refer to fully automatic machine guns, right, light machine guns. So that's a firearm that has Um, A lot of ammunition, you hold the trigger down, and the gun rapidly continues to fire bullets out out the barrel until you release the trigger. And and so those are assault weapons, and they've been banned since 1977. So Tool is saying, no, I am not going to make assault weapons legal again, which is the word game that they've been trying to wrap around his neck, trying to mislead Canadians into thinking he's going to make machine guns legal again. In fact, Bill Blair himself had uh, even said, that Aaron O'Toole was going to um, repeal all the restrictions on handguns. Like the liberals are just, it's really incredible. Because I'm looking at, at the platform. So I went through all three platforms today and I, I searched I searched the word gun and I searched the word assault to see how many times it comes up. But it only the word gun comes up once in the gem, New Democrats. It comes up more in the other two. But when finding in the conservative platform, it talks about repealing C-71, the May 2020 ordering council. And it goes on to say conducting a review of the Firearms Act with participation by law enforcement, firearms owners, manufacturers, members of the public. We will update legislation by introducing a simplified classification system and codifying it in law so that it it is clear what types of firearms fit into each category. Does that mean anything to someone like you? Yeah, it means a lot. Um, The the order and council ban on so-called assault style weapons um, in last May 2020, these were firearms, as I said, that that licensed gun owners um, have owned for over half a century in Canada. And they're used for sporting and hunting purposes. That's why the RCMP approved those safe for use this entire time. Um, gun control is a wedge issue. And it's Justin Trudeau, as usual, trying to take one group of Canadians and pit them against the other. So you have in Toronto, since 2015, shootings in Toronto are through the roof. They're almost, they've almost doubled since Justin Trudeau came to power. Well, his gun control you know, plans clearly aren't working very well in Toronto, of all places. So he, he tries to cover that up by pointing at licensed gun owners saying, yeah, I realize that all these unlicensed people are shooting each other, but somehow it's your fault. So when you have someone like Aaron O'Toole saying, 
you know what? I know what the problem is. It's hard work. I'm going to address it the, the real way. And I'm going to stop this vilification of licensed gun owners for no good reason. You know, that means a lot to gun owners. And that's what he's doing. Uh, I've heard from people as well uh, and people that are concerned uh, that some manufacturers or, or uh, places that, that sell firearms, that sell guns, they're closing up because it's become so confusing under the ordering council and confusing as to what it is that's now allowed, why some of these guns have been put on this list that they won't be allowed anymore. Uh, what do you say about the confusion and what people in the industry are saying? Well, the confusion is entirely intentional, right? This is this is the tr- this is the Trudeau government's way through every every issue that they have had to deal with as a government. So they use inflammatory language. They call people liars when it's them that in fact are lying the whole time, um, and it's really hurt a lot of people and it's pitted a lot of people. I mean, I'm in I'm in I'm <laughs> I'm in conflict on social media, not so much in person, but on social media with people I don't know all the time where they think that, that we have machine guns in Canada. I keep trying to tell them, and then they're like, well, you, you work for the gun lobby, so clearly you're a liar. So the, uh, the amount of, um, of damage that, uh, that Trudeau has done to our society um, and to businesses and to people and to our culture. You know, people own guns. They, they, they use guns in competitions. They belong to gun clubs. Everyone they know are gun people. This is a cultural thing that's happened, been happening in Canada for 200 years. And, you know, it's a group of people been under attack for purely political purposes. And I just I can only hope that Canadians are waking up, whether it's whether it's alienated people that are vaccinated versus unvaccinated. We're all Canadians or gun owners versus non-gun owners or left versus right or male versus female. All this stuff, it's, it's got to stop. And, and uh, so there's there's damage on so many fronts. And I just, I just hope Canadians are waking up and going to reject this liberal government. It's been terrible. Uh, do you think there's there's confusion? And again, is it being put out there on purpose in that if you're not somebody that owns guns or has a, comes from a family that perhaps owns guns, has a hunting background, or, or for whatever reason, is there, there confusion when you talk about the fact that people think that machine guns are legal or that there's some call to, to make machine guns uh, legal again? Is there confusion between machine guns and semi-automatic rifles? Well, absolutely there is, and this is exactly the tactic that the Trudeau government has been using. So, as I mentioned, fully automatic machine guns, as it were, banned in 1977, and not a single government, conservative or liberal, ever since, including O'Toole's potential government, is going to bring back assault weapons. And that there, right there, is the evidence of the liberals lying to Canadians. They have no respect for Canadians. They're a little hot about it, right, because I have to look at it every day and listen to it. But they have no respect for Canadians. He's not going to make assault weapons legal again, as Bill Blair and Justin Trudeau have said, you know, time and time again. He's just saying, hey, Rod, meaning me as, a, as an individual, the guns that you safely used your entire you know, life since you've owned them, will, you can use them again under the same restrictions that you had before, even though and, and you know, acknowledging that you weren't a problem to society before. Like that is a completely reasonable approach. And that's what he's that's what he's saying. Is there anything you think needs to be done as far as changes to gun law in Canada? Is there anything, do you think, that that needs to be tweaked or that that should be there that isn't? Well, I think there's a lot of things that need to be tweaked. One of the things is there's there's been some existing um, things that the Firearm Center can do to restrict people um, with uh, with criminal histories from getting firearms that they don't do. 
Um, and those laws are already there. They're just not really being used. Um, and then when it comes to uh, changing firearm regulations, if we're going to have regulations on firearms, you have to be able to demonstrate that they're going to have a benefit to public safety. The majority of the, of, the, of the rules that we have and how they're implemented right now are designed just to discourage people from owning firearms. It's just, a, it's just to make firearms very so onerous that you wouldn't want to own them. It's really punishment. And that's not what laws should be. That's not how they should be formed because we want people to comply with the laws. We want people to respect the law. So it has to be reasonable. So there's a lot of work that really has to be done that way. And um, definitely hoping that uh, Aaron O'Toole gets a majority and we're able to really have a good look and maybe have a conversation with all Canadians about what these laws are and what impact they'd have on public safety. All right, Rod, we'll leave it there for today. Rod Giltaka, thanks so much for your time as always. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Well, as you've been hearing on the news, we have a bit more of a clear idea what the vaccine certificate or vaccine passport, whatever you want to call it, is going to look like come September 13th when you will need that to access certain places such as restaurants and some clarification on fast food restaurants in particular. Joining us is Ian Tostenson, president and CEO of the BC Restaurant and Food Association. Good afternoon to you. Happy Friday, Jill. How are you doing? Happy Friday. Very well. We haven't talked to you in a while. No, I know. Um, I was feeling kind of left out. <laughs> no. No, it's good to talk to you. Well, here we go. Yes. So that, that it's kind of one of those no news is often good news. But a lot of questions yeah. about when this vaccine requirement card comes into place specifically to restaurants. So what do we know now about fast food restaurants? So we just had a uh, really... Um, an upbeat conversation with um, the government uh, on the card and also QSR. So, you know, what the recommendation on, on was QSR is quick service restaurants. But really what, what's going to happen is that if in any restaurant you want to grab and go, go pick your food up and leave, you will not require uh, proof of vaccination. And so that, whether that's a quick service restaurant or whether it's a full service restaurant, any restaurant, what you will have to do is provide verification of vaccination if you decide to stay in the restaurant, whether it's, you know, it's McDonald's, A&W, or a White Spot. Um, if you're going to stay and sit down, you'll be required to show the vaccination. That way it just keeps it simple. And um, there was some notion about maybe patios will be exempt, um, but they won't be. It'll be vaccination requirements for all parts of the restaurant. Okay, so it's not a, a clear exemption, though, because I think there was some confusion that people were under the understanding that fast food restaurants would be exempt from the requirement. But it'll still be if you're going into a McDonald's or a Wendy's or, or what is considered a QSR or a fast food restaurant. If you are staying there, you will still have to show somebody your vaccine certificate. Yeah, exactly. And if you think about it, if we are trying to you know, create a simple system that people can understand and embrace, and then suddenly it's like, well, if you go here, you can do that. You go there, you can do that. People just can go whatever. So this way, uh, it's consistent. It's simple. It's in the spirit of what we're trying to do here. And uh, and I think that people, I think it'll work fine. I, we're not too concerned about having too many problems with, 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 with that particular system. How will it work, though, if somebody walks in, and I'll just use McDonald's as an example, not that they're the only one, but if somebody walks in, because we've talked a bit about this, the fact that for a lot of people, that's where they access a washroom, that's what they can afford, so that's where they're going to go. So if somebody goes in and says, I'm not staying, gets their food, but then sits down, it's not like a McDonald's has served 
observers walking around or has people walking around, what would happen in that scenario? One of the things that we um, will, will there'll be, there'll be some really strong signage uh, in every business that outlines, you know, what has to happen here. And, you know, and the message is going to be is that we're executing a, a, a government of British Columbia health order by law. Um, you know, this is what has to happen. And if you decide to stay, then you're going to have to decide. And, I, and I, you know, I had a conversation with some of the fast food restaurants uh, that are in parts of the city that that's a real concern on how they are uh, taking care of um, the, the, you know, the people of less fortune or, you know, the homeless. And and they'll just work it through. I mean, um, they're not about to, to leave people behind. We're in the hospitality. We don't want conflict, but we'll take care of those situations. And I heard something really cool today is that by taking care of those, uh, uh, you know, of, of that sector of the population, which is struggling, um, one restaurant said, you know what, and in return, they take care of us. There's a, there's a real honor system that happens. So we're not going to leave anybody out. We would, uh, we will have to, and there'll be a little labor to this, is we'll have to encourage a person nicely that you can't be here unless you show us your vaccination card. I think most people will be reasonable and uh, and not cause problems. I, I really feel the, the problems in this is, are going to be hopefully few and far between. So we've gone, it seems like there's been a big shift then from a scenario where we talked about some unfortunate incidents of uh, in Port Alberni, uh, somebody urinating yeah. on the counter. We've seen people very agitated. We've gone from that and talk of potentially uh, hiring security guards from the, for these restaurants. It sounds like you're thinking that won't be necessary. Yeah, I think, you know, I think what you're seeing now, um, my feel is that the it's it's shifting a bit here. We're getting more people now wanting to stand up to make the system work. And I guess it's the silent majority are saying, you know what, we've, we've, we've got to do this. We all got to, we all got to be co- contributing to a successful outcome. Um, and so uh, the situation in Port Alberni was just gross, horrible. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't, I know what, what we'll do is, I mean, we'll avoid conflict and we'll just close our dining room. So in the case of, you know, a quick service restaurant that that's, you know, uh, that people are causing, but we just close it, you know, and that's unfortunate, but, we're not going to try to fight it. We think that um, initially we'll get some pushback. There's an element out there that we'll, we'll try to make a point, but I think they're going to go away, and I think they're going to get really bored of it because um, if you look at the numbers now, the vaccination passport you know, approval or, or the, the polls are saying you know, almost 80% our vaccination rates are going up. So I think by and large um, we'll get through it. It can be rough a little bit at the beginning, and it's going to be a little bit rough when you check in with your app uh, beginning, it might be a little bit, you know, a minute or two more to check in. But um, I would think a couple of weeks of, of doing the system and we'll be running pretty smooth. What would happen, do you think, in a scenario where, say, somebody, maybe they don't have the app on their phone or their phone battery has died and somebody then is carrying their paper uh, vaccine record in, in their purse or their wallet or their bag? Would that be OK if somebody shows that then to the, the front desk person and says, but look, I've got this. Can I please sit here? Yeah. So we saw, we actually had a glimpse of how it's going to work, and it's really, it's actually quite cool. Uh, and in the, in kudos to the government, they're going to formally roll this out next week. But we just had a call uh, 30 minutes ago, and so the, the, the downloadable app will be for businesses. That'll be basically the scanner. And for you and I to go into a restaurant, we can 
have our information on the phone. So we will go to a website and download the information, and it's just in the phone. And so we won't need Wi-Fi or cellular service to access it. It'll just be on the phone. So my app as a business owner will talk. To, we'll look at your phone and say, great, and it'll show vaccinated um, or not vaccinated, first or second shot. And then if that doesn't work, um, you can pull out your piece of paper that you downloaded from the government website. It'll show your vaccination status. And the only thing we have to do, though, and remember, is that we have to also have photo ID to make sure that the integrity of that uh, information is good. Um, so I think everybody has to sort of really start thinking now. Next week, they can get the information onto their phones. They should download an app, carry or the, the, the download a piece of paper with them at all times from the same place. And I think that's going to make it a lot smoother when we when we check in. Did you get the impression then from your meeting as well that this will, in fact, be a temporary measure? Yeah, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of optimism to do this, um, that we could play part of encouraging people to get vaccinated as an industry, number one. And um, and I think there's a lot of optimism from uh, health in the province that um, this is going to make a real difference. And sooner than later, I mean, they are still talking about holding this into uh, place in January. Mm-hmm. But I think there's optimism that um, by employing this program, we're going to do a number of things as you know, start to stamp down some of these numbers and to um, keep businesses open. Because part of the problem that we've had here, and it relates to the uh, the labor shortage we had, you know, we close, we open, we cut our hours. And, you know, for people working for us, that's really tough. So the, the, the optimism is, is that this program will allow business to function and stay open and not have to go through the closures that we've been through in the last 17 or 18 months. Right. And, and just touching on that, something you mentioned as well, that if, if things do get off to a rocky start or there is conflict, there is that potential, especially for the fast food restaurants to shut down their dining rooms. How much of a hit would that be for restaurants? Probably 50 percent of their sales uh, would be, you know, 40 to 50 percent of the sales would be in store sales. Um, but then they quickly make it up. Uh, so what we saw when dining rooms are closed, is that, you know, people um, will do the drive-through thing and uh, they'll do the, the delivery thing. So quick service, we're, we're very good at maintaining a lot of the revenue, even despite the fact that the dining room sales are uh, were closed. But we're just not going to, um, you know, I, the, uh, the, I call them idiots or whatever they are. It's just like, don't come, stay home, give us a break. Just remember that someone's daughter or son is likely working at a counter for their first job, and we want to make a good impression on them. We don't want to scare them away, so um, like the guy did in Port Alberni. No, I think yeah, I think everybody was quite disgusted by that behavior for sure. Uh, it yeah. sounds sounds like you've got a fair amount of optimism then, and so you think people, when we get all of the details and the announcement on Tuesday, uh, hoping then for a smooth transition come the thirteenth. Yeah, I, I think yeah, for, absolutely for sure. I think it's I think that people will find it not to be um, onerous. Um, it's fair. Uh, I think the government looks like they've done a really good job at anticipating any bottlenecks. Um, it, the system seems to work, so I think we'll be good to go. I mean, obviously, on the thirteenth of September, uh, the government's not going to be out, you know, making sure everybody does this and closing businesses down. There's going to be a grace period, and they acknowledge that too to make sure that you know we as we go through the learning and the understanding and how to use the system that it's going to take a little bit of a while. But, um, you know, we've been through a lot, as you, as you know, Jill, and um, the industry 
responds and they do it well and they'll bring innovation to it and they'll bring intensity and they'll bring that hospitality spirit to it. And, uh, and I think it's going to make a big difference for, uh, for BC. All right, Ian, my guess is we'll be talking to you on or shortly after the 13th as well. But thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jill. Have a good long weekend. There couldn't possibly be a song better in line with what we are talking about now. It is Labor Day weekend, and that means it is time once again for the three-day novel contest. It's been happening for, I believe, 44 years, and so many people will be sitting down at their computers, maybe even doing it longhand, although I'm not sure how you would do that in three days, and trying to get that novel done. But what is it all about? How did it all begin? And what's it like to be one of the editors? Well, Jessica Key is joining me now. She is a senior editor with the three-day novel contest. Hey, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, Jill. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Your job must be one of the, I would say, more interesting, but you probably also have to read a lot of things that maybe you wouldn't choose to read uh, if you weren't one of the editors. But what's it like being an editor of this contest? You know, I think that's actually one of the really great parts about being an editor on the contest. I get to read so widely and just the genres and subject matter that gets covered in the entries to the contest is so incredible and it really gets me out of my own reading comfort zone. All right. So this is the the three-day novel contest. It's it's brought to, to together by threedaynovel.com and Anvil Press. Can you talk a little bit about what that means as far as the rules and what will people actually be asked to do if you're taking part in this? Yeah. So as you said, the contest has been running for 44 years as of this year. So it's been going for quite a long time. And the rules have been pretty set since it got started. Um, Basically, the contest starts at midnight on the Saturday of Labor Day weekend, and it goes until midnight on Monday. And in that time, people lock themselves in their homes, in their Airbnbs, in a treehouse, wherever they choose to write. Um, and they kind of furiously write for three days. So they have until 11.59 tonight, and that's um, Pacific time. Um, so if people are a bit ahead of us, they still have some time to register. Okay. Um, and then writing begins at midnight. So before the contest starts, they're allowed to research, they're allowed to outline, and they're allowed to do character sketches. But all the writing in their novellas that they turn into us all happens in that 72 hours. And as an editor, can you tell when you're, write, when you're reading a submission if maybe somebody broke the rules and didn't write at all in three days? You know, I think that sometimes you kind of get the idea that something might be a little bit more polished than maybe would have happened in three days. But in general, I think most participants really consider it as a personal challenge and a writing experiment. It's about challenging yourself and breaking through writer's block or um, writing within a container. And so I think the value of the experience is really about doing it in those three days. We do ask that people have someone kind of vouch for them as a witness. They don't have to be sitting in the room watching them write, but they're signing a piece of paper saying that they believe that the person participated in good faith. All right. I was going to ask if it was the honor system, but that sounds like not too onerous to just have somebody say, yes, I I know this person, I can vouch they did this. 
Yeah, in particular, um, Anvil took the contest back over last year. And of course, people were writing within the parameters of um, some COVID-19 guidelines as well. So they might not have had people that they could check in with in person to actually sign a piece of paper. So sometimes we, I just had someone emailing me or um, they had scanned something to upload as well. So it's a bit of the honor system and also having someone vouch for their character. All right. Um, I know this this started, I think, if you do the math, was it 1977? And it was a handful of, of writers in Vancouver that brought on this challenge to write a novel in three days. And it happened to be over the Labor Day long weekend. Now where it stands, how many people generally take part? You know, it varies a little bit year to year. Um, in the time that we've taken it over, it's certainly been in the hundreds, but there were fewer um, fewer people at the beginning of the contest as it picked up some steam, but now entries can be, um, in certain years, there's been over 500, which is quite amazing. Hmm. Uh, that makes, I would imagine that makes for a, a lot of reading for you as well. It certainly does. Um, we're very grateful for a very dedicated group of volunteer judges who help us go through all the submissions and make their recommendations. And it was such a fun experience to do. It was on Zoom, but a roundtable with those judges uh, discussing the long list, then short list, and eventual winner last year. Yeah, I can only imagine that must have been so much fun. Uh, generally speaking, how many pages are the uh, submissions? The average submission length is about 100 pages uh, typed in double space. Novellas are generally at minimum going to be about 17,000 words. Um, but we always recommend to people, even if you don't hit that word count and you didn't finish the contest, we always encourage people to still actually submit their work to give them that sense of completion on it. And after you submit, there's nothing stopping you from expanding that piece of writing further as well. Some people actually specifically do the contest, not planning to win, but actually just taking that time to get something down on the page that they want to continue to work on in the future. Hmm. And are there certain genres that people maybe are drawn to for this more than others, say thriller or mystery or or certain ones that maybe uh, lend themselves to being easier to complete in such a, a small time period? You know, I think we do have such a wide range of genre that gets submitted. Um, Last year, there was a fair amount of kind of mystery or crime and some sci-fi. In previous years, we've seen lots of romance. Um, One winner back in 2017 was kind of like a play on a hard-boiled detective novel. I think we do see um, kind of literary trends come and go. But in general, the submissions cover such a wide span of genres. So whatever you're writing in, this contest can be for you. All right. How long do you, how many words do you figure as an editor? Are you reading into it? At what point do you think, okay, there's something here that's worth exploring more. This writer has something or the other side of it. This needs a whole lot more work. This, this is not something that's going to be published. You know, I think one of the really cool things about the three-day contest, because of the time limit and also kind of the word count limits that people run into because of that time limit, so many of the novels really start in the action, which can be pretty captivating to read. And 
I think in general, I can tell if something's got something to it within the first couple chapters. Mm-hmm. Um, because the novels that win, while we don't edit them a time, we want to stay true to the spirit of the contest. You know, sometimes they do need a little bit of fleshing out with the ending, for example, or if there's something in the middle where um, perhaps a storyline was dropped and needs to get picked back up. But usually I can tell within the first couple chapters if something's going to grab me. I do read beyond that because, you know, some people, don't, their writing doesn't pick up steam till the middle and, uh, and I could help them with the beginning. But in general, I'm kind of captured in those first few. All right. Any advice for people then that are taking part? Maybe it's the first time they've taken part in this as far as be in a quiet room or be in a place, uh, maybe avoid alcohol or avoid too much coffee or any advice for people uh, as they take on this gargantuan task? <laughs> Um, My best piece of advice is always to remember to fuel yourself. That includes um, food, sleep, taking a break and stretching or going going for a walk. Um, Thinking of this as a marathon, not a sprint, so you can take care of yourself so you can get through it. All right, that is good advice. Uh, you me- mentioned, so it starts tonight, at uh, midnight. So midnight Saturday, which is tonight at midnight. So are people still able to register if maybe they're hearing this, so they were on the fence and they want to try doing this? They absolutely are. Registration is open till 11.59. So you could register and then wait a minute and start writing if you wanted to. All right. And does the winner get published? The winner does get published, yes. They get a cash prize, and they get offered a publishing contract with Anvil Press. So our 2019 winner, his book is just getting back from the printer right now, and our 2020 winner is going to be published in spring 2022. All right. Good incentives for people that are going to be taking part. Jessica, we'll leave it there, but thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Have a wonderful long weekend.